0: turn in our Bibles to Jonah chapter 3, Jonah chapter 3. Today we want to talk about the process of justification, the process of justification. So far we've studied, as we started out in the first lesson, we had an overview of the whole book of Jonah, and then a call that was revealed in Jonah's life. And then a common rebellion where he rebelled against God. And then a countering rebuke where God rebuked him. Then a chastisement revival. God does some of that in our lives. And that was the sovereign call, section number one. And the second section is the second chance. I thank God we have that second uh, section and a second chance. And so we have in this the plan of Jehovah, we've talked about that, the prayer of Jonah and the proceeding of the journey as he continued in the belly of the whale, and then the pronouncement of judgment. And today we want to look at the process of justification. So let's look at these verses, Jonah 3, verses 5 through 10 beginning with verse 5, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. And that's the whole city of Nineveh. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and set in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way, and from the violence that is in their lands or hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their words, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil, that is, He changed the plan that He had, that He had said that He would do unto them, and He did it not. And so this is a little capsule of what took place at this time with the people that were there in the wicked, wicked, terrible, wicked, terribly wicked city of Nineveh. Now the question is asked in the Bible by different ones, how can a man be justified? Job asked that question. Uh, he said, how can man be just with God? Job 9.2. Later in chapter 25 of the book of Job, he asked a similar question. He said, how then can man be justified with God? Or ca- how can he be clean that is born of woman? Behold, even the moon it shineth not, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. The moon's not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm, and the son of man which is a worm? It's not very complimentary, but that's what he's saying. How is a man, if the sun's considered, and the moon considered, and the stars considered? by God, to be unclean in in a sense, then what about us? And he says, we're just like a worm. So how can man, who is like that, and being unclean, how can man be justified? We have so many sinful tendencies. Uh, We all have them. You remember what the Apostle Paul said. Let me read some of those verses where he had a real uh, problem and dealt with this idea uh, and the problem of the flesh. He said in Romans 7:14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. For what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? Then he said, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Then he added another verse Later on in the next chapter, he said, There is therefore now, right now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Paul was saying we have the old nature, we have the new nature. How are we going to overcome the old nature? The only way we can overcome the old nature is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Just one way, getting saved and having God living in us, therefore being justified By faith we have peace with God, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we look at is the importance of faith. Faith is so important. In verse 5, he said, The people of Nineveh believed God. That's so important. They believed God. It's faith. And so faith in God compared to what? Faith in God compared to works. Faith in God compared to religion. Faith in God compared to self. Brother Peoples and I had a man, a lawyer, an attorney yesterday, that uh, told us that he was saving himself, that he was his savior. As he sort of did like that to himself, he said, I'm my own savior. And we had a little conversation about that. But at any rate, uh, he felt like he was doing good enough to get into heaven and he would save himself and and that type of thing. No, it's not that. It's faith. They believe God. So the people in Nineveh believe God. And that's what was uh, necessary. It's impossible to please him without faith. And Hebrews 11 tells us that. We cannot please God unless we have Faith. In other words, we believe what God says. And so we have the obligation of faith. Faith is an obligation, not an option. And some think it may be an option, but it isn't. Uh, Ephesians 2, and verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved through what? Faith. It's a gift of God, but it takes faith to believe that. I got saved by faith. How about you? I believe God. I believe Jesus died for him. I asked him to save me. And I firmly believe today I'm saved because I believe what God says in his word. And we're saved by faith, not of works. Then he says in Romans 3, 27, where's boasting then? We can't boast like that guy yesterday. I saved myself. I'm my own savior. Oh, no. Where's boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? Nay. But by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified, there's the answer to what Job was asking, that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. It's not the keeping of the law. Nobody can keep all the law. Nobody does keep all the law. And so it has to be justification by faith. And so we, as Christians, accept salvation by faith. And that's how we became Christians. That's how we were justified. And so Philippians tells us in in, uh, chapter 3 and verse 9, these words, And be found in him, be found in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, Paul said, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And if anybody had any reason to brag on keeping the law and trying to do good, it was the Apostle Paul. There'd be very few people in our culture today who could be trying to live as holy as Paul was, and yet Paul was lost. Even though he was a member of the Sanhedrin, even though he kept a log on all of what he was doing mentally and went down a list to try to do the right things, he still says that he had to be justified by faith, not by the keeping of the law. And so we need to do that. Now, when we get justified by faith, we can say, well, I I have no problem with that. I'm saved by faith. I know I'm saved by faith and I have faith in the finished work of Christ. But here's the question for us after we get saved. Do you live by faith? We get saved by faith but do we live by faith, do we really trust God like we should trust God? Luke 18:8. 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Uh, Doctor Crystal used to say he was pastor first Baptist in Dallas for many many years, and he used to say he didn't think many people would be missing at the rapture because of that verse of Scripture. When Christ comes, will he find faith? He felt like that there'd be so few Christians when the Rapture takes place that it really won't have an impact—the uh, cars wrecking, the planes crashing, and all that. I don't know, but the, the the question is asked: Will he find faith? And and I tell you, there's a very little of it around in our whole culture today. There may be some of it among the Christians, but in the whole culture, it's it's a lot of other thing. There are a lot of other things besides faith. And so the Bible tells in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we should walk by faith, not by sight. Do you walk by faith or sight? Do you have to see it? Do you have to touch it? Do you have to figure it out? Do you have to rationalize it before you do it? That's the way a lot of people do with different things that God has asked us to do in the Christian life. Paul says in Romans fourteen twenty three, And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, Because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. He was dealing with an issue of whether you should eat meat that was offered to idols. And he said some of those folks cannot do that because they came out of idolatry and they're not going to go down to the meat market and buy the food that was just offered to an idol because they can't eat it by faith. They can't eat it with a clear conscience believing it's God's will. But faith is the principle that you and I ought to live by. And so... We need to ask the question every once in a while, and it's a good one to ask right now. What is there in your life today that is not of faith? What is in your life today that is not of faith? Think about that question. Is there anything in your life that's not of faith? We always want to see it and and know it, figure it out before we do it, but it ought to be by faith. It doesn't matter whether it's salvation or whether it's separation or whether it's stewardship. Some people have a problem with that. Or whether it's our service, thinking we can't be used of God when really we can be because he's promised we can be. And so if it isn't by faith, then let me tell you, it's impossible to please God. If we don't live by faith, if we can't track down some things that are things of faith and, and live totally by faith, then... We're outside of the fellowship of God. We're outside of the realm where God can really bless us. So we have an obligation to have faith, to trust God no matter what the circumstances, to trust God whatever he asks us to do, and to exercise faith. And then what is the object of faith, the object of faith? Well, the people of Nineveh believed whom? God. They believed God. And it wasn't just Jonah, but they believed what he said God said. So they believed God. Most people have faith in something. You know it? You talk to them long enough, you'll find out they've got some kind of faith in something. It may be themselves. It may be in man. It may be in the government. It may be whatever it may be. They have faith in something. And... So they uh, they concentrate on that. And probably the people at Nineveh had a lot of faith in their economy and what was going on, the culture they had of that day. And they were rolling along pretty good, and some things were going well for them. And they probably had faith in their culture, faith in their government, faith in what was going on, and in their materialistic lifestyle. And a lot of times we have faith in the wrong thing. And especially for salvation, you've got to ask, where is my faith? And be sure, you want to be sure, absolutely, unquestionably sure that your faith is not in your works or your good life or your religion or your infant baptism or anything else, that your faith is in one thing, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Be sure it's in the right object. Here's why, Acts 4:12. Neither is there salvation in any other. There's no salvation in any other. There's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And it has to be not our works. It cannot be that. We'll die and go to hell if we believe in that instead of by faith believing that Jesus paid our debt and paid it in full for our salvation. So where's your faith in that? Is it in your preacher, your church, your priest, your good works? Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and life. You know that verse. What about us as Christians, though? Where's the, what's the object of our faith? Our ingenuity, the pastor, the staff, our wife, our husband, uh, our children, our government. Where is our faith? We ought to recognize that Christ and God is, should be the object of our faith also. And uh, actually, we should daily, Every day of our life, rely on the Lord. I hope that's true in your, in your life. Every day, not just once in a while, not just when we have big trouble, not just when things go really wrong and south on us, but every day of our lives, every day to have faith and rely on God. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abideth in me, I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. And then here's the key, the clincher of that whole thing. And he says it this way, For without me you can do nothing. You couldn't take your next breath if God didn't want you to, neither could I. And he said, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It doesn't matter if if the watchman wakes up and says, Here comes the enemy, here comes the enemy. If we're not trusting in God and depending on God and relying on God, then it's not going to make any difference. So we uh, we don't need to be so proud as to say that I did it, I did it my way, the song, who was it, Frank Sinatra, I guess, saying I did it my way. Well, that's not the best way. Um, and we can brag on our achievement, but we need to say that we have to trust in the Lord. Sufficient of ourselves, he said, we are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves but our sufficiency is of God. It's not your brilliance. It's not your personality. It's not your money. not anything else. Our sufficiency is of God, Second Corinthians 3, 5. And so it takes faith. And then secondly, we see fasting. Verse 5, they put on sackcloth. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth. Verse 7, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, "Let neither man nor beast, man nor animal, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed nor drink water." The animals and all of the human beings, he was saying. the king said, "Let's don't feed the animals even. Let's fast. Let's really fast." Now why is something that radical? Why something that radical? Well, I think we could call it ultimate contrition, real brokenheartedness, real contrition, a contrite heart. And so when we come to the place, and fasting is something that some Christians have never done other than when they're going to the doctor the next day, and it's not for spiritual reasons usually. It's uh, for physical reasons. But fasting is a good practice in the Word of God where we, we get under such a burden for something, whatever it may be, that we are willing to show God our sincerity about the matter, that we're willing to let Him know we are absolutely contrite about it and we fast and we're very serious about that. Old Testament fasting was that way. Ahab fasted when he got very desperate. In that situation, and when he knew judgment was going to come, and he fasted in 1 Kings 21 came to pass when Ahab heard these words, he rent his clothes, tore them off, and, and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. Why did he do that? He was saying to God, I want you to know I have a contrite heart. I'm repentant, and I want your help. The psalmist said, I humbled my soul. How did you do that, David? With fasting. I humbled my soul with fasting. And then in 69.10 of Psalms, he said, When I wept and chastened my soul. How do you chasten your soul, David? With fasting. I chastened my soul. Not my body so much, but my soul. So when repentance is accompanied by sorrowful self-denial, then God is impressed with that. And God accepts that. Listen to this, Psalm fifty-one, seventeen. The sacrifices of God are, what, a ram, a lamb, a turtle dove? No, not today. And even back in the Old Testament, the main thing God was looking at was our heart and their heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Do you have a broken spirit today? And a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. A broken, contrite heart over lost souls, over sin, over our country, over whatever it may be. So there's ultimate contrition. Then there's a universal commitment. Verses 7 and 8. A universal commitment. He said, and he caused it, uh, and he caused It to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Don't let them drink water. There we go back to what he is saying in the matter of the fast. And then in verse 8, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, that's contrite heart. Let them cry mightily unto God. You know, when animals are hungry, they'll start letting you know it, won't they? A lot of times you, you if you don't feed them for a couple of days, if you've ever lived on a farm, you'll find out they'll let you know that they're expecting some food, and so we need to cry mightily ourselves, not only the animals but the human beings unto the Lord and that's what they did. They fasted, they went in sackcloth, put that on in ashes, uh, and they uh, some of them set in ashes, and they cried out unto God. And so God uh, God answered their prayer. And this was a, a citywide thing. It was a corporate thing. It was a lot of people that got together and from the king all the way down decided this is the right thing to do. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Earlier, there were people present. These all, A-double-L, continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. You can get people to a, a banquet at church. It's hard to get them to a prayer meeting. But these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And so that, that takes place in chapter 1. But then in chapter 2, what happens? The power of God falls out on the day of Pentecost because a group got together and prayed. The power of God fell out on them. And there was a universal commitment results came, and when we have a universal or a togetherness, a commitment, then things are going to happen, things are going to change. If we could get together at Worth Baptist Church and pray together and everybody get in it and everybody have a broken heart and a contrite heart and do those things, then we'll see unbelievable changes. This was an impossible thing for this city to all have a revival. A whole city of, of a half a million people who are wicked and evil, and to have revival, and God gives us a formula in Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If we just get with the formula, I think we in America Christians now could see, even at this late date and this late stage, a revival in our country. So we have faith, we have fasting, and then we have forsaking, forsaking, and. I think that, uh, well, look at verse 8. Let let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, cry mighty unto the Lord. Yea, let them turn everyone from his what? Evil way. Turn from the evil way. Um, a lot of times people agree with God, but they don't forsake their sin. I have talked to people and counseled them that were living in a affair, in a relationship, and I say to them, you know that the Bible says this is wrong. And they say, yes, I know the Bible says this is wrong. But they continue. See, it's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to live out the truth. It's another thing to do what God says. And so we have to agree and then forsake The sin, Isaiah put it this way in chapter 55 in verse 7. These were his words. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, return to our God for he will abundantly pardon. First there has to be a repentance and returning to him. As we do that process, then he forgives us. And we have to do it the way God says do it. Turn from our wicked way. So repentance involves a change of direction. A person who repents does an about faith. Sometimes we've had uh, members of our church that have said, well, I think you're too hard on that repentance stuff. I don't believe you have to repent. You just get saved and you live by grace and go on your merry way. No, God says, repent. And that means you're willing to turn, like a car going this way and he turns that way. And we repent. We do an about-face. We turn around. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Ezekiel said, Repent and turn yourselves from your idols. Turn away your faces from all your abominations. Turn away from it. If you have sin in your life today, whatever it may be, turn away from it. Repent of it and turn away from it, whatever it may be. And that's just the change of direction. And then repentance involves a change of what we do or our deeds, our deeds. And that was the last part of that verse. Verse 8, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Turn from the evil way. Turn from the violence that is in their hands. Turn from that and turn from what God called in his word here the violence. And so all should be willing to change from uh, heading toward hell if they're lost. Uh, Who wants to keep going in that direction, heading toward hell, when they need to do a repentance and turn around and get saved and then they're headed for, for heaven? But many people, even after they get saved, and there's so many Christians today, I'm telling you, we just eat up with it in our churches. And I know what I'm talking about. There's so many Christians that will not change their lifestyle, although they're saved. They want to be part of the world. They want to live like the world. They want to do the same thing. There's not much difference in Bible-believing churches and some of their practices in weddings and other things. Any different from those of those that are unsaved, those that don't know the Lord? We just we we won't change our lifestyle. We want to we want to be part of the world. We want to we want to laugh like them and it's the same things, we want to be like like them. And we just we enjoy being like the world somehow or another. We get saved by grace, but we need to repent, change, and live for the Lord. This is a condemnation, that light is coming to the world. Men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds be reproved. But he that, doth trust, he that doeth truth, rather, cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. A saved person ought to live like a saved person, and practice life like a saved person. And not be carnal and fleshly and worldly. We should practice righteousness before God, and that's very clear in the Word of God. If we want God's blessings, then we have to practice that. And a lot of times, we want God's, we don't want God's, uh, uh, we don't want God to tell us what to do, and yet we want His blessings. Uh, we want the blessings of God, and yet we want the benefit. Of the world, and we can't have both. There's no way we can have both. First John 2:15, Love not the world, Christian. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. It's very clear there. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become what? New, different. So we have faith, we have fasting, we have forsaking, and then we have forgiveness. Jonah, in verses 9 and 10, Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God did what? Saw their works, all that they were fasting and all of that, that they turned from their evil way, And God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. God forgave them. And so if we want God's attention, we ask for forgiveness. We repent, and God will give us attention, and it's all based on the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why God was willing to forgive because of his mercy and because of atonement. The Bible says, And rend your heart and not your garments, and turn... Unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Turn to God, make it right, confess it, and God will forgive us. Thank God for grace that we have every day. If we get away from God, just come and make it right. Repent. And sometimes we do get away from God in a lot of different ways. We just have to tell him we're sorry, repent, mean it, show him our our contrite heart, and God will forgive us fellowship can be restored thank you lord for these principles let us live by them be wise enough to remember them and then to practice them not just to know them but to do them in christ's name amen